on this episode of In The Rack Podcast. Long-term, they both have great results, but like you and I both found in the research, there's some some nuances, especially early on, like Chad had already mentioned early on, the hamstring graft tends to have higher revision rates within that one year. And actually the rates are um, four times for him. Welcome to In The Rack Podcast, where we provide you with a practical framework for breaking PRs in all facets of health and wellness. We are just a couple of bros giving you the simple hows in a world of complex wants. No filters, no scripts, no rules, just straight talk. Talk to them. Now, let's get into the rack with your hosts, Dr. Chad and Dr. Nick. Welcome everyone to another episode of In The Rack Podcast. I am your host, Chad, and with me is my co-host and fellow physical therapist, Nick. So today we're going to talk about this patient that we've been talking about the last couple of episodes, and we haven't been able to discuss his full case because we haven't had all of the information on his case yet. But today we do, and uh, we want to kind of give all of the information uh, regarding um, what happened to his ACL, but we also want to talk about, you know, basically what happens with ACL reconstructions, you know, what is the uh, risk for ACL reconstructions, what different types of ACL reconstructions we can have. Um, we're going to go over some stats on like retear rates and, and all that too, as well as some of the statistics surrounding the tests that we performed that day. Um, to determine whether or not he did or did not have an ACL tear. So uh, for all of you that are new to the Reckless in the Rack series, this is part B. So 35 part B. Part A we did because we didn't have all the information. Part B is now to conclude what we originally wanted to do. <laughs> so um, this is where Nick and I, and and sometimes Katie, we had Katie on the, the uh, podcast episode last week. So we share stories from our patients and we like to share these stories, not only because they're reckless, but some of these stories may sound familiar. And this one uh, is going to be familiar for some of you ACL patients out there, whether you've had a previous one, whether you've recently torn an ACL, whether you're going through ACL rehab currently. So uh, this will all be some great information for you. So uh, it's all all good and perfectly okay if some of these stories sound familiar. I mean, that is definitely the purpose of this Reckless in the Rack series. So um, for all of you that are joining us, we typically do a couple stories, but today we're just focusing on this one story and we're kind of elaborate a little bit more on this story with regards to ACL rehab, regards to ACL surgery and, you know, the risk factors involved as well. So so this patient here, he, I'm going to recap the story really quick. So he, he saw me, oh God, the beginning of his rehab journey, which was within the first couple of weeks of his, uh, his, his ACL surgery. And he ended up going to another PT place afterwards. Um, and it was more due to insurance issues more than anything else. They wanted to stay with us, but they were changing insurance. Um, and we did not take their insurance at that point in time. So, uh, he did finish out his, uh, PT for about six months. And then after the six months, he came back to us to finalize his ACL rehab, kind of go through more functional training, kind of get him to the point where he wanted to go back out and play on the court. He's a basketball player. Uh, he is a junior in high school. So we worked with him for about I say about a month and a half, two months tops. So that puts him right around eight months. And he stopped 
with us to go kind of on his own, which was okay. I mean, he was doing really, really well. Uh, well, he ended up seeing the doctor about two to three weeks after finishing up with us, and the doctor cleared him to play. So the doctor cleared him to play. He had a hamstring graft, by the way. And this was what, about eight months after? This his... is about eight and a half months yeah. after surgery date. So already too soon. I mean, I know there might be some people out there that could pull that off, um, but for most people, eight and a half months is not enough time. I would have ne- never recommended anything like that. Um, I think the earliest we've ever recommended is like maybe 10, 11 months, and that's if you're like ready, ready to and go. Th- and that depends on the sport too. Totally. Like that's, he's playing a pivoting, jumping, cutting sport in basketball, so that's going to be much more delayed unless, you know, if he were playing a different sport that did not require the same amount of pivoting and cutting, then yeah, it might be a different conversation, but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, he did look really great in the clinic, but you know, game time is totally different than, you know, playing in the clinic. So it's, it's uh, a different scenario. And that's the reason why we do wait, um, a longer period of time for that. Anyways, he was coming down, uh, from a rebound and as he landed, he felt a pop in his knee. And he was like, oh, I don't know. I'm not in any pain. That's kind of weird. He walked off the court. He had some swelling, but nothing crazy. Um, you know, the the trainer checked him out. Like, not sure if it was, if he had retorn the ACL. The mom called me the next day. Um, obviously, she was upset. She didn't want him to have to go through all that all over again. So uh, we recommend that he come into the clinic. We just wanted to look at it. So we did. We put him through a, a battery of tests. And honestly, it looked great. Uh, we put him through a couple of special tests. Everything looked good. Um, we had him do some single leg work. Everything looked good. Like he had no pain. And for the for the most part, I was and Nick, we were both convinced this kid yeah. was was great, right? Um, so he had a couple of follow up appointments. Uh, he also had another MRI to confirm whether or not it was or was not torn. And even the MRI was coming back inconclusive. And nobody could really determine. There was a decent amount of swelling in there too. So it was it was probably hard to see on imaging. Well, the doctor ended up ended up doing surgery on him as a result of the, I mean, even though it was inconclusive, the doctor still wanted to do an exploratory on him. So they did go in there and they did find out that it was torn. I don't know the extent of the tear. Um, The mom didn't know either. Um, You know, people misconstrue things. It could have been a partial tear. It could have been a full thickness tear. I'm not really sure. Um, Either way, the surgeon ended up doing the um, reconstruction anyways. So he went from a hamstring graft to a patellar tendon graft, which we'll talk about later in the episode here. But um, conclusive, we were, we were wrong. Yeah. As, as far as we know, we were we wrong. We were. We were. And, and for the record, <clears throat> we didn't, um, when we were thinking he looked good because he was moving around, he was hopping, he was singling, squatting, like Chad had mentioned, none of the tests were really coming out positive. We didn't recommend, oh, no, he's fine, just go. We said, Correct. go get another opinion, maybe That's right. maybe three more. We actually recommended a third opinion as well. So we said, go see more people. We didn't say, oh, no, you're fine, right? So we weren't to the point where we said, you know, you're good. You don't have to go see, go back to the doctor. The doctor's right. wrong, right? right? We said, go see another one, see right. see what more people say. So that that was our recommendation, just so people don't think we're like, yeah, and oh, the, yeah, no. And it was based on the what the doctor had told the patient too, because the doctor was like, well, I'm not really sure, but I can do an exploratory to find out. Like even they were not really sure. Yes. And yes. because everybody was not sure, and with the way that the results came out in the clinic, we were like, man, you really got to get this checked out by somebody else. So, I mean, that was what kind of geared us in that direction for him. So, 
let's talk about these ACL tears, man. I mean, this, this, obviously they're super, I don't want to use the word popular, but they're, they're common, you know, super, super common. And I mean, I don't know what you found for numbers, but I mean, the retail rates are, they're up there 20, 25%. I mean, it, I mean, it could be higher for sure. Yeah. I think, I think it's important for listeners to know that, you know, cause it's such a common, uh, surgery for people to hear about because of sports and things like that. So people are like, Oh, it's an AC, you know, any, anytime you see one of those awkward, you know, landings or, or, uh, injuries on TV, in sports, it's like, oh, ACL, you know, that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind for people. And, um, I think it's gotten to the point where people are like, oh yeah, no, they'll just, they'll be back in a year. They'll be good as new, but they're still studying ACL repairs and they're still trying to develop new techniques. So that's a good indication that it's still not perfect. Right. And that's with any surgery. Like you could go through the history of it and be like, oh, okay. They developed this technique. Then they went to this technique. Clearly the technique before wasn't good enough for them. You know, so they wanted to develop something that was potentially better, right? So new techniques keep coming out. So when you're in a situation like that where you might have torn your ACL and you are considering surgery, that is a situation that you need to get multiple opinions, see what surgery, what what option might work best for you. And then if you have a surgeon that you like, the biggest, the best question you can ask that surgeon what do you do the most of, right? People are always getting caught up in like, oh, I want to do this graft, but that particular surgeon that they want doesn't do many of those grafts. Now they're pushing a, you know, a surgeon into a corner where, you know, they're asking him to do a graft he's not comfortable with, as comfortable with, or he or she's not as comfortable with. So, you know, that's a big, big uh, consideration. There's numerous grafts and we're going to kind of touch upon um, each of them uh, as we, we go about the, this, these next few minutes in the podcast. Yeah. So I think, and you know, everybody, I think everybody needs to do their own research, whether they they ask somebody in the profession, whether they do, you know, a Google search, whatever, you know, you need to know the different types of graphs. You also need to know uh, which graph is going to be the emo- most appropriate for you. Because like Nick said, you know, this guy over here might do, you know, hamstring graphs all the time. This person over here might do, you know, cadaver graphs all the time. This person over here might be, do, might do patella tendon, right? So it's, we don't really know, you know, which one we need, but if you talk to a surgeon, if like Nick said, you know, if they're most comfortable doing hamstring grafts, they're going to recommend hamstring graft, of course, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just what it is. Yeah. Um, but I, it all depends on what you're going back to as well. Yeah, so like, are sure. you going back to sports? Are you going back to like, like Nick said, cutting activities? Are you going back to, you know, just, I just want to garden or I don't really care. Yeah. I just want to walk. You know yep. what I mean? That, that really does, you know, determine. It matters. Yeah, it totally does. does. Totally Without does. So let's talk about the the main different types of ACL right. graphs that can be All right, let's be talk about the, the, the first main two um, that most people would be familiar with. We got our patella, um, and that's bone, tendon, bone. So it's going to be connected right to the, the end of the femur and the end of the tibia. And then hamstring graft, slightly different. So one of the biggest uh, ways I, I like to explain the difference between the two to people is that with the patella graft, we're taking a thick cut out of the patella tendon. So that's the tendon below the kneecap, you know, in the front of the knee. And it's a thick cut. So it's more a, you know, big chunk out of the tendon versus the hamstring graft is they take a longer strand and they kind of fold it over typically. So, and there's some nuances there depending on how, how the surgeon may do it, but um, that's kind of in general. So the thought when the hamstring graft initially kind of came out 
and was being performed was that, oh, because it's stranded, I mean, think about a rope, right? It's a bunch of different strands kind of wound up together and it's really, really strong. So that was the thought where it's like, oh, if we fold this over, it's actually going to create more strength than just this this chunk taken out of the, the tendon. So that was the thought. And they're both great graphs, hamstring and patella. We'll talk about the other ones. We'll kind of compare these two because these are the most most common and most often compared in the research. Um, so they're both great. I mean, long term, they both have great results. But like you and I both found in the research, there's some some nuances, especially early on, like Chad had already mentioned early on, the hamstring graft tends to have higher revision rates within that one year. And actually the rates are um, four times for hamstrings within one year. And then it's 1.5 times at five years. So that that risk of revision goes down as time goes on with the hamstring, but it's still higher early on. And that could be for, from a number of reasons, right? Like I just mentioned before where the patella goes directly bone to bone, right? The bone bone heals the fastest in the body. So if that's the case early on, it's probably going to be a more stable graft. But as time goes on for the hamstring, it, it kind of catches up. But early on, it's a little bit more more risky for sure. Yeah. And these, these two graphs that Nick is talking about is what we call an autograft. So if you see that in the Correct, literature yeah. or if you see that on like a script or you see that in something that you're reading, an autograft is your own tissue. Um, Cadaver is the third most common, yep. which is what they call an allograft. allograft yep. yep. Yeah. So um, again, all depending on what you're getting back to, I think the research will indicate that the hamstring and the patella uh, graft are going to be the most appropriate for people that are returning back to whether it's sport or, you know, extreme activities that are going to require more stress from the yeah. knee for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah, there was um, a big meta-analysis in 2017 that they had over 47,000 um, ACL reconstruction patients. So this showed that pretty much over over the long haul, there was low uh, retail rates, revision rates, but they were slightly higher um, for hamstring grafts in, in those 47,000. But in the people who didn't need revisions, there was no differences in laxity of the ligament after. So that's a good thing. So it's an indication that it, it does well. Your body wants to heal, right? And it's kind of, it, you know, I, I feel like people always miss this part that we're using a patella tendon and then hamstring tendon to regraft a ligament. Those are two different tissues. Yes, they're they're made up of largely, you know, collagen fibers, different types of collagen and different breakdowns of collagen. But nonetheless, your body has to transform the tendinous tissue into ligament. That's really freaking cool. Yeah. That cool. your body does that. So, yeah. you know, take a step back and just appreciate that your body has the capacity to do that. And the fact that, you know, we have individual surgeons taking these tissues from other parts of the body and putting it in a, in place of a ligament. And then your body just does what it needs to do over time. And over, over the long haul, there's, there, there's, you know, minimal risks, you know, for most, that's pretty, pretty cool. Pretty yeah, cool. that is, that is pretty cool. And, you know, like, like Nick was saying, that patella is bone to bone. So they are literally cutting the bone where your tendon inserts above and below that knee where, you know, they then drill into your bone in your femur and tibia, and then they will actually place those into yeah. the, the drilled, um, holes in your leg. Uh, they will fuse over time. And that's why, you know, it tends to be a faster rate. Now, this is where it kind of gets dicey because some some doctors will say, oh, well, because it's a patella bone to bone, then you can go back to play within four to six months. 
you know, because bone heals so fast, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But we all know that that's probably not the best recommendation. Yeah. Um, so just be mindful of that, that if a doctor says, oh, well, you can get back to sport faster if we do a patelegraft, um, you know, just, just red flag that and just make sure that, you know, you are ready for sport. Talk with your PT or whoever's working with you and make sure that, you know, you're doing all the appropriate tests to make sure that you're ready to return to whatever demands that your sport's going to require of you. Yeah. And it's not to say that the hamstring graft doesn't go bone to bone right. for everyone out there. That's right. just the name of, of what it is because of how they do it. Um, the ligaments, that's what ligaments do. Yeah. They, they connect bones to yep. bones. So the, the hamstring graft has to be connected to the bones. It's just connected in a different way. That's right. So typically it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, we'll call it pinned down instead of, uh, drilled through. Uh, so there's, there's still, you know, they're, they're still connecting it to the bone just in a different way. So that, that healing process occurs a little differently, you know, so it's slightly different in that sense. And I think it's, it's, I think the healing, um, the, the higher, the significantly higher revision rates in hamstrings have more to do, honestly, in my opinion, with the fact that it's a, you know, more of a stranded graft than the, you know, thick tendon. Because if you take the chunk of tendon, that's all the same tissue that was already connected to each other. Whereas you take that strand, it's now, okay, it not only has to convert tendon into ligament, but now it has to kind of melt, melt that together. So there's that going on. Yes, the, the bone part does matter because the bone will heal faster, but nonetheless, that is a, another difference for sure. All right, so those are the three main. So we've got a couple of different ones that are, well, one's fairly new, the other one's sort of new, but and I guess in the grand scheme of things, time frame, they're both pretty new. We have a quad tendon graft, which I saw the first one of those like three or four years ago. And we also have the bear protocol. So let's talk about those. So what's what's the, the main difference between a quad tendon graft and like a patella tendon graft? Yep. So quad tendon comes from above the kneecap, patella tendon comes from below the kneecap. That's pretty much the simplest way we can put it. Um, the quad tendon, it's so interesting because um, it, research takes so much time. <laughs> the first the first reports of quad tendon grafts for ACL were actually, I believe, what I could find was the 90s. Yeah. Which were, were almost like three decades from Isn't that crazy? That. And we're, like Chad was just saying, he saw his first three years ago, right? So the the in the mainstream, we're not seeing them, you know, until 20 years after it starts in the research. That's pretty, pretty crazy. And we'll talk about that more with the bear protocol. But the quad tendon, um, it's just a thicker, thicker area of tendon. Uh, than the patella tendon, so it's it's bigger, it's wider, it's maybe not as as dense, I would say, but it's it's probably got a little bit more variability in the tissue, which may help, may may hurt, who knows? We don't know yet. Um, I will say with the quad tendon, you saw, I remember he had a lot of issues with, or that individual had a lot of issues with uh, range of motion. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that goes along. So. All right. Now that you mentioned that, might as well talk about that too, right? Like now that we're talking about the different types of graphs, what does rehab look like for each one of these graphs, right? Because yeah. they are a little different. It I mean, is, it's, for sure. I will say that for sure, uh, quad tendon and patellar tendon tend to be a little bit more, um, 
they're a little tough for sure in the yeah. beginning because you need to get the range of motion. Yeah, and sure. you know, when sense. you're bending that yeah. knee, you have to, you know, stretch out that, you know, incision and everything else. Yeah. It's not super comfortable. Um, is it still effective? Yes. It's still very effective. Now you don't have that with the hamstring graft as much, but you still get some pain behind the knee with that as well. You know, you might see that later on down the road with, you know, some weakness, you know, in like the posterior chain. So hamstring glute, that kind of stuff. Um, but I will say that overall, um, yeah, you have to be willing to kind of push it a little bit. It's For almost sure. like a total knee replacement, sort For of, sure. in terms of how much you got to like push it. But um, I think they they kind of gravitated more towards the quad tendon grafts to reduce the like, you know, what late onset of patella tendonitis and patella patella tendon yeah. issues. Which, quite honestly, I don't know what the research shows on that, but I haven't really seen much of that in my experience. And of course, that's low on the on the food chain there of hierarchy for research and evidence. But I don't know what what. What have you seen the research on that? So there was a little bit I found that they turned to the quad tendon uh, because subjectively people were complaining of so two things. People were complaining of pain with either deep flexion or kneeling, right? So people, if they're younger, right, they might might have to, you know, get close to the ground um, in their sport, or if they need to kneel, just get something off the ground, whatever the case may be, um, or even play with their kids kind of thing. Um, you know, so kneeling on the ground was a big thing. And then the other thing was that with the patella, they tended to find earlier onset, um, uh, osteoarthritis now with any, so for anybody we've talked in, in extensively about arthritis. Yeah. Okay. Don't panic. Don't freak out. It's not a death <laughs> sentence. Number one, number two, if you have surgery, I'm just going to come out and say, it. if you have surgery on any joint, you will have arthritis in that joint. The joint has been altered. Once you are cut open, you are going to get arthritis on most knees, like knee surgeries, any kind of arthritis. It could be ACL, it could be meniscus, it could be anything. It's the, the rates are like close to 100% within 10 years. Okay, so arthritis is coming. It's just a matter of when. They started to see earlier onset with patella tendons. Okay, so they said, oh, we don't like that. That's not good. You know, arthritis is, is, is a, you know, bad thing in the medical community kind of thing. So, um, they wanted to say, all right, let's try somewhere else. So I think those were kind of the two big things that I could, I could find, which, which is why they turned to the quad tendon. Um, yeah. The, and then the, the other thing was in certain sports, like Chad said, the patella, um, tendinopathy, I think it was mainly a problem in soccer, um, which is obviously a big sport in the U S but it's not as big, like it's huge worldwide. Right. So that's, that's, there's a ton of ACL research from other countries because of that, because of soccer players. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, we've seen them both and they both do well. So yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. All right. Let's talk about that bear protocol. Um, one thing it's before kind of the bear protocol, one. sorry. Oh I had, yeah. Go I had for to bring it. up this other thing. Um, what was I going to say? I was going to say something about the patella, um, and the hamstring. Oh yes. That's what I want to say. Hamstring graft. So this always confused me when I started learning about this in college. Um, so what does the ACL do for everyone listening? The ACL reduces, so your shin bone, the tibia, right? So below the knee, the ACL is meant there. It goes from like the back of your thigh bone, your femur, to more of the front of your tibia, right? So it restricts that shin bone from moving too far forward. Okay. So that's what we like when you see that knee buckle on TV in a sporting event, that's that, that shin bone moving too far forward. Now the ACL does that, you know, passively. It's not like an active tissue, like your muscles, like it would contract. What helps that 
you know, dynamically is your hamstrings because your hamstrings pull back on that shin bone. So that always kind of confused me in, in school where I was like, okay, if the hamstrings helping the ACL do its job, why are we then taking the hamstring to do the graft? So I'm not saying this to say that you shouldn't do the hamstring. I'm just, it's, it's just one of those thoughts. I've always had one of those questions that's been in the back of my head. And I, I suppose no one's really ever answered it. Um, but it is a consideration, right? If the hamstring, we know, right, that people have more quad weakness after a patella or a quad graft. We know people have more hamstring weakness after a hamstring graft. If the hamstring is there to assist the ACL and we're trying to reduce the likelihood of re-tearing, we might want to consider, especially what sport they play, what kind of activities they do. If they need a lot of hamstrings, for example, like a soccer player, a basketball player, a sprinter, they need that for deceleration. So, um, you know, that's a huge consideration there for sure. For sure. Yeah. And so for all of you that are listening to Nick, you're like, but doesn't the hamstring flex the knee? Yes, it does when you're sitting down or laying <laughs> on your stomach, right? Yeah. But when you're running, it actually extends the knee because it works to decelerate that motion. So what Nick is talking about is he's saying, oh, all right, well, if this shin is going forward, because that hamstring kind of comes from the back of your butt and goes all the way, crosses the knee to the back of the tibia, it actually has this eccentric control to, or e-concentric control, right, to, you know, reduce that amount of shift. So yes, in turn, it does help, you know, the ACL do its job. Now, if it's not helping do its job, right, then what happens, right? We get a lot of stress on the ACL and then you throw the rotary component in there and everything else. So um, obviously important consideration if you're going through rehab and you had a hamstring graft, if nobody's working on that motion with you and working on deceleration training involving the hamstring, that could lead to injury in the future, re-tearing as well. Yeah. And that's going to impact rehab, right? Like if you get a hamstring graft, and you're not doing a lot of hamstring strengthening, both, you know, concentric, eccentric, everything in between at uh, short lengths, longer lengths, uh, you know, that's that's a problem. Same thing with the patella. If we're not doing, a lot of people fear uh, things like leg extensions to isolate the, you know, to more isolate the quads, I should say, you know, to, to strengthen those quads. It's like, no, we need to strengthen the quads back up if we're using patella or quad tendon, you know? So uh, it definitely changes uh, rehab to, you know, slightly to an extent. So. All right, into the bear protocol. Um, yeah, they basically just take a grizzly bear, you know, <laughs> in, in in the OR. And, Is it uh, a grizzly bear's tendon um, that yeah, they're using? That's why you get a sweet tendon. grizzly bear tendon. It's, that is it's so pretty cool. cool. That is awesome. um, they actually just take the 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 big toe tendon of the the grizzly bear <laughs> and they use that. It's awesome. No, just kidding. So bear stands for bridge enhanced ACL repair. So this one's this one's pretty cool, pretty unique. It's very different from the other graphs. Um, it's pretty time sensitive because uh, you have to get in this, this may, may have changed slightly because, you know, this, this protocol kind of came out in probably a decade or so ago, maybe a little bit more, but it's just starting to get some of the long-term studies under their belt. And basically where the, uh, ACL tears, they take those two ends that are torn and they kind of suture them back together, but around that suture put essentially like a sponge. Um, and that sponge is what is going to pull blood to the area. Cause that's part of the reason the ACL really can't heal itself very well. You know, if it's a partial tear, yes, it can over time, but the ruptures and the, the significant tears, those will go, you know, stay torn because the, the ACL doesn't have great blood flow to it, you know, to itself. So 
this sponge attracts the blood flow and all the healing factors, which actually promotes that that suture to then heal the the ligament around it. So you don't actually have to go take tissue from elsewhere, which in theory sounds fantastic, right? Like that that sounds like okay, that's the best. But we're still still waiting on longer term studies. It's showing really, really promising results, but there's still, I think the longest study they, they have that I could find was like a two-year follow-up. And obviously they need some of the long five, 10 year, because if, yeah, if it's good in two years, but then after two years, all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's giving way. Yeah. We don't want that either. So, yeah, and we saw one of these patients, God, three or four years ago, and it, she was actually part of a study, the study in Boston and the protocol behind the protocol is kind of wild. Like I couldn't do anything with this woman because I remember there was like, she couldn't even bear weight on it. She couldn't flex it past a certain degree. Like the time frame to heal from this thing is going to limit you to get back to any type of return to play anytime soon. So, and, and the, that's the, that's the unfortunate nature of research, right? Because they say, okay, this is the idea. This is what we want to study. They study in animals first. And then once they do it in humans, they have to control all the other variables. So the early studies with this protocol, they weren't even allowed to do physical therapy because that could be a, a confounding variable. So now they have to do a few studies without PT. Now they mix in simple basic PT for a period of time and then they lengthen that, right? So the studies come out and it takes a lot of time. So we don't even know, like, could they weigh variable? Yeah, probably, but they can't. they can't have that variable be in play yet. So it's just the unfortunate nature of, of research because this protocol was developed with the idea of it being faster than the other ones because you don't have to have that period of time that the body transforms a tendon into a ligament. So, you know, in theory, it would just be, okay, however much time it takes this suture to heal, that's, you know, that's it. So it could be, you know, other ligaments heal in six to eight weeks, right? Like it could be six to eight weeks, but who, you know, who knows where we're going to get with that, but it is promising. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, Super I haven't seen another one since, so I know, I don't, I, know. I don't know how it's going. I, I'm pretty sure the, um, I think it was a woman who invented the the process. I'm pretty sure she's at like one of the hospitals in, in Boston. I think she is. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a pretty local thing, which is cool, but yeah, it just, it, unfortunate with with something like this you know and operating on humans it takes a lot of time in the research um like we said with the the quad tendon it's it's been you know close to 30 years before we've actually seen it to become a little bit more mainstream so one last thing on these different types before we um move into some of like the return to play considerations for athletes um we didn't we didn't dive too too deep into the uh the cadaver allograft but that is something that uh may sound enticing to a lot of people, but again, it's, it's most, most surgeons will recommend that in, um, you know, some older clients or patients, uh, maybe people who aren't playing in, uh, organized sports still, because we don't have the data on, you know, athletics, cutting sports, pivoting sports with, with that, uh, that graft in particular. You also don't always know what you're getting. A lot of times there is, you know, there is information that you can get on your donor your donor ACL, but you don't know what you're getting. So it's, it's one of those that again, talk with your surgeon, see what's best for you based on your activities, but it's usually reserved for people who are just trying to get back to general life, not necessarily athletics. So 
consider that if you still like to uh, partake in recreational sporting activities, you know, that might not be the best uh, graph for you at this current time. You know, it may change, but right now we just don't know enough, uh, you know, as it relates to sports with the cadaver graft. And then the other thing I would say is that there, there's nuances. I mean, there's there's been reports of, um, you know, mixed graphs. So they use a little bit, little bit of, of, you know, one area and then a little bit of the other. So they mix it, you know, even, even something with the quad tendon, you know, they can do full versus partial thickness. So all that stuff matters, like it all impacts it. So ask those questions, like, don't, don't just, you know, take, take what the doctor is saying and be like, okay, that makes sense. You know, I agree, whatever you think, you know, the, there's so many options out there for, for surgeries that, you know, ask the questions because you just, you, you deserve to know the answers. And like we've said before, if the provider can't give you the answers, eh, maybe it's, maybe you want to go, you know, get a second opinion, third opinion, and then see, see what's really best for you. So there's a lot of nuances. So ask those questions, you know, dive deep into it and, and, you know, do your own research for sure. Yep. Cool. All right, let's talk a little bit about return to play. So we already touched upon retail rates for sure, but this is a this is a big one for us because this is this is our area. So there's a lot of um, special tests, I guess you'd call them, for return to play. You know, all these special hopping tests, all these strength tests where you, you know, let's talk about it. Sit down. Let's talk about sit it. Sit down. Isokinetic testing. Kick your leg out. How how <laughs> functional is this type of a test for people to return back to play and let's talk about the physical demands of the sport right which we already addressed you know in terms of decelerating right and change of direction and you know and then we have somebody sit on a chair and put a basically in a leg extension machine and it's got a roller on each side and you're kicking up and kicking back okay um, and they're generating force for extension and flexion, and it's what they call a quad to hamstring ratio, which um, number one isn't functional, but they used this way back in the oh god, I don't know, probably seventies. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, that, sure. they pretty much use these tests now in schools to show people like what it it used to be and what it what it can do, and you know, it's it's basically a um, an artifact, if you will. But some people still use it. Um, but they they like to see a good what's what's the ratio supposed to be now? Is it one to one? I I think it used to be I two to one. I I don't know what it is now. I, yeah. I I was taught in school two to one. Two to one, yeah. But uh, I I don't know. I, I they probably have such a <laughs> wide variety of of results that they they have no idea. <laughs> I honestly didn't even look up the research because it's not even worth it for me. Um, and it's only because it's not a functional exercise because sitting somebody on a chair and telling somebody to kick some kick a leg extension forward and then curl a machine backwards, um, first of all, does not replicate to the function of the muscle as it relates to when somebody's actually on the ground. Like we talked about before, like the hamstring doesn't flex the knee, it extends the knee. So why are we spending time testing somebody's yeah. flexion strength? Yeah. It's, it's, and it's just, it's just information. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's like, okay, let's see if this person in, increases strength. It's not, it shouldn't be decision-making, but we use it as decision-making. A lot of, uh, these hospitals have kind of this just protocol set up where it's like, okay, come see, go see your surgeon at six months. You're going to be cleared for these testing. Once you do this testing, these are the metrics we're looking for. If you hit that, you're good to go. You don't have to see me ever again. It's like, whoa, 
Okay. I've talked to That's, providers too that have yeah. spent, I mean, That's these crazy. machines are 30, 40, $50,000. Yeah. And they're like, no, we spent this much money on this machine. We're going to use it. Like that's, yeah. there's no other justification for it besides that. Yeah. Um, and they can charge for it and everything else. So, yeah. And <laughs> man, there's, there's so much research. Oh, it's totally. Too. It's crazy. Totally. So, uh, there, just be mindful yes, that yes. there's other ways to test your ability to return back to play. And if somebody's just putting you on a machine and collecting data, I think that's part of the puzzle. I don't think that you should just go based off the data Correct. and Correct. say, oh, in your left side, that's the side that you had surgery on, is about 90% of what your right side is. You're good to go. Like that's not that's not yeah. a good indication that you're good to go. Yeah. And if a sur- I know there's some surgeons out there that use it to at six months every time. And they know that the patients aren't going to test well. And it's their way of saying, hey, get your shit together. And, and that's good, too. And that's, I don't mind that, right. where it's like, hey, look, you're still really, really weak. Look at this side compared to that side. You know, and that's like, okay. Because now it gets them. Because a lot, of, a lot of times at six months, that's when people are starting to get antsy. They're like, can, I feel really good. Can I do this? Can I, you know, they want to do stuff. And this test might be a good way to say, hey, look, you're not good. But there are some people that, that can, you know make their way through that test i was gonna te- say test well I was just gonna say right? that the research shows i think uh, this uh, there was a big study that showed only 3.8 percent of patients pass all the tests at six months which is small but people will pass you know a select few and actually the people who pass them tend to be younger people but where what are the high higher revision rates younger people which is interesting right so they they kind of bluff their way through the tests and then the doctor's like oh you're good look at these tests and then they go back out and they're not good Right. So there's, there's a lot more to it that, and that's, that's our big thing with this is like, there's a lot more considerations. I mean, even just think about the psychological factors with ACL tears or any kind of injury. When you return to sport after a, uh, you know, even if it's, even if you come back fast at eight months, eight month hiatus, like you haven't played that sport, you know, live in eight months, there's going to be some psychological stuff going on that you have to iron out first before you get back on that, that field or court. Right. So that's a, a consideration that I I believe that we're not doing well enough as a healthcare team in terms of, you know, doctor, physical therapist, athletic trainer. We're not doing well enough on the psychological side. And that's what we need to address. You need to put these athletes in more of those um, sport like activities in the clinic, you know, get them back into practice first not just say hey you're good to go right the, the good to go if you say you're good to go to a 17 year old what do they think all out. i can do whatever i want I can, I can play a game you know that's that's what they're hearing they're they're hearing it's like no let's 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 give them specifics hey look i want you to get back into drills you're not allowed to scrimmage you are not like yeah i want you to do these drills first minimal jumping right let's start with the the, the um just skill related drills and then let's get into the more live action drills okay and then we get into some scrimmaging not the game because the scrimmage and game are very different. If you if you don't think they are, you in my opinion didn't yeah, play sports played. at a high enough level. So <laughs> you played you played recreational sport like it, sure. as a child, right. not not as in in high school, right? You it, if you get to high school and you are now playing sports, you know that scrimmaging at practice and games are very different. Your brain is acting very differently. You're thinking very differently. You're having different feelings, emotions, all that kind of stuff. Very very different. So. There needs to be that distinction. You know, if you are cl- trying to clear someone to play, it's like, hey, look, we're not ready for live games because there's different factors we have not addressed yet. We need to address those first before I feel comfortable with you getting back in the game, right? So those are all 
big, big considerations for sure. Um, back to what I was saying about the tests. The so younger people tend to bluff through the test better, and then males actually bluff through the test better as well. So that's another thing too. If you're dealing with a male, they might go for this six month testing, and they may test great, and you'd be like, all right, oh, pump the brakes. I know males tend to test better, and as it relates to re, you know retears. There's there's not much difference. There's there's higher rates of initial ACL tear in females, but in terms of retears, it's pretty similar. But if males are, you know, if if females have higher rates in general, but then males are bluffing through the test better and revision rates, you would think it because you females have higher rates in general, you would think revision rates are also higher in females. But their revision rates could actually be pretty similar because males are bluffing their way through the return to play tests, right? So that's a, a, a consideration. And if you are going back to a sport, we mentioned jumping, cutting, pivoting before, you have a five to tenfold increase in retear. So take your time with this. Don't rush the return to play with these these athletes because you're 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 flirting with danger there. You are it's a slippery slope, you know. So do your due diligence and and uh, make sure they're they're good on all levels for sure. Yep. I think that's a good piece of advice. Yeah. So take that for what it's worth. Um, I do want to hit one more thing before we close this out. And um, I know I'm only bringing this up because I know we did talk about this when uh, we first mentioned this patient's um, ACL and when he came into us and what test we were doing. And we mentioned this lever sign test that <clears throat> um, is you know, my go-to, uh, I think it's, yeah, I think yeah. it's your go-to as well. I know. So, um, that's just part of it. And that's just one of those things that before I even have him do anything, I just want to see what it looks like. Um, and you know, I have done a lot of the research on this in the past and this test is, I mean, overall it's, it's close to about 80% accurate. Okay. So obviously it wasn't, he was part of that 20%, right? But I just want to kind of go over something really, really quick and, you know, talk about like what that means. So if you guys are like looking up or, you know, you're currently in school and you're looking up this and, and you're like, oh, but, you know, sensitivity, specificity, I know that, you know, some of these tests can, you know, be higher, you know, in one way than another. And that's very true. And, you know, just to kind of just to kind of touch on that really, really quick. I mean, there is something even though you can say a test is 80 percent accurate, you don't really know what the breakdown is on that. So. Even though this test is 80% accurate, it's only 63% sensitive. It's a 90% specific, pretty much. So um, I think for most of our tests, we like the sensitivity to be as high as possible. Um, so in this case, there was a 37% chance that, you know, this patient here was going to have what we call a false negative, which he did have, you know? Um, and basically what that means is, so like sensitivity in this case is what we call a true positive. So like we know for a fact that this test if it's positive, he does in fact have an ACL tear, right? Um, and then specificity is, is, is more of like that true negative. So like the probability of the test is going to be negative, you know? Um, so it's, it's kind of like figuring out where that person falls. And, you know, I, I would say that in terms of like looking at these tests and the data, um, in terms of our aspect, it's always nice to have it as high as possible. Um, but, you know, just to show you that, you know, even though something could show that it's really accurate, it can miss things. You know what I mean? Could it, could he have had some guarding there? Could something else have come up? I don't know. Who knows? Right? Like it's, there's so and, many variables. And I would say that just like males can bluff through the return to play tests, 
that they're probably better at bluffing through. And not that he meant to bluff through that, right? Like he, his, his body was just, the muscles are a little bit more tense, ten, you know, typically in the males. So they might give you that, that false, false negative for sure. Um, that is, you know, absolutely something that happens without a doubt. Uh, one, one more thing I wanted to add, just because this is something we hear all the time. Everyone sees these professional athletes. Oh, you know, so-and-so had an ACL tear and came back in six months. Okay, number one, professional athletes are getting a, a full-time job's worth, if not more, of rehab per week, right? So they're getting eight, eight to 10 hours per day, right? So they have a full-time job in their rehab. You're getting typically two hours a week. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. you do stuff at home too, but right. in terms of one-on-one with, you know, and provider, it's it's at most two hours a week typically. Hyperbaric chambers. Yeah, yeah. so they're, they're getting recovery. their rest, recovery, everything. But in 2020, there's a study done on um, professional football players, and it was over, you know, a period of time. So I, I don't even remember what it was, but say it was 10 years. The average return to play rate was 11.6 months, people. Yeah. Okay. So solid. a year. All right. Basically yep. a year. And you can come back and say, oh, yeah, well, it makes sense because the season doesn't start till the next year anyway. It's like, yeah, but they're waiting closer to the year on average, okay? And that's a sport that requires cutting, sprint, you know, short short bursts of, uh, of sprinting, things like that, right? It, it, it requires all these movements that we were talking about, okay? So 11.6 months. So they waited much longer than that, that every so often you get the guy that comes back at six, seven months, every so often, okay? But the vast majority of people, closer to a year, all right? And that's that's what we like to see. We like to see that. You know, a lot of people say nine to 12. I would say we, we like to see more 10 to 12 for most of these athletes. And the, the study also showed that the, I think it was only 53% of athletes return to pre-injury level. Okay. So think about this when, when you are going through the first one, take a little bit longer in the rehab, really make sure that you're ready on many levels, but like you, you've, you've gone through the test numerous times you know and you're like okay i'm i'm ready i've done these over and over and over and i can do it i can do it in a variety of environments i can do it in a variety of you know positions all that kind of stuff so do your due diligence and you know give yourself a little extra time if you think you're ready you if you ha- if you have to question it you might not be ready so do a little bit more rehab love it i think we covered it i think yeah. that pretty much covers it yeah if you have any other questions you guys know how to reach us so um Next week, we have another guest on the podcast, and her name is Carrie Goyette, and she is a chiropractor in the area. She's got her own practice in Amesbury, Mass. She's got a different um, type of way of treating, and I don't want to ruin it. I'll have her talk about it because I don't want to mash it up, but she uh, she's great. Uh, she has actually worked on me in the past, and uh, not only does she know her shit with chiropractic, but she does this type of zone um chiropractic work that's a little bit different than I've ever seen. And I want to have her talk about that and uh, show that there's uh, more than one way to skin a cat in, in the field of, of chiropractic work. So, and this is one I've never seen. So, um, and, it, and it does, it does help for sure. So we're excited to have her on the podcast. So tune in next week for that. It's going to be a great one. Anything you want to add on that, Nick? No, no. It's Love exciting. It. Cool. All right. Moral of the story, quickie. Uh, mistakes are part of the dues of being 
any professional, even a medical provider. Yes, I said it. We all make mistakes. Admitting your mistakes is not a sign of weakness, but a sign of maturity. The biggest mistake you can ever make is being afraid to make one. I'm going to finish this one up, make mistakes, learn from them, and move on. Thank you for joining us in The Rack this week. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also find us online at ProformPTMA.com or on social media at ProformPTMA. And remember, if you train inside the rack, you better be thinking outside the rack.